Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. We talk at the end of the episode every time in the credits about how the ABA is a membership organization. We want to make that annual investment worth more for our members. And part of that is a series of webinars that we host on our new members social media platform, ABA Community. We just went live on ABA Community. Well, I guess it's been a few months, but we just announced the app version of ABA Community. It's very cool. If you're a member, you should check it out. We are doing one of those webinars next week, September 20th, 2023, with a name that podcast listeners might recognize. It's Rebecca Heisman, recent guest and author of the book Flight Calls, which came out earlier this year. She will talk about some of the stories behind the book, all the kind of old ways we studied bird migration. And if you remember from our interview earlier this year, there are some wild ones. We're going to do it live for members on ABA community. Should give a presentation. I'll be hosting a live Q and a. So if you are a member, please come on over. If you are not, perhaps we can persuade you to come on over. We offer e-memberships at $30 a year. That's $2 and 50 cents a month. Come on now. You have streaming services that you don't even watch that cost more than that. Anyway, you can get more details on Rebecca's program on our website, aba.org. Please check that out. And I hope to see you next week. On the show this week, today, it is a random week for Random Birds with birding editor Ted Floyd. We talk about crows, ducks, terns, and whatever else the numbers tell us to talk about after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of September 2023. At the time we recorded last week's segment, the hurricane-prompted American flamingo invasion of the eastern U.S. had reached a high-water mark in southern Ohio. We thought that that might have been the extent of this current movement. It turns out that that might have been premature. At least two more states and possibly a third added American flamingos this week, all from the upper Ohio River Valley, suggesting that the birds were traveling up the biggest body of water they could find once the storm broke up. Kentucky got two records, its first and second, one pair in Rowan County in eastern Kentucky and another bird on the Ohio River itself in Gallatin County, mostly on the Kentucky side of the river, but reportedly on the Indiana side as well, where it would represent a first state record for Indiana. The new northern limit of this influx, though, is now Pennsylvania, where a pair of birds were seen in Franklin County in the south central part of the state. At the time of this recording, one of those birds was taken in to rehab following an encounter with a local common snapping turtle. The bird received a nasty bite and was taken in for surgery. Uh, it is recovering well. By all accounts, no broken bones, but some torn skin and tendon damage. I suppose it will be returned to the pond with its companion if that bird is still there by the time it completely recovers, but I don't know what the plans are at this time. Reports of new American flamingos have mostly dried up of late, so the next step might be reports of birds in odd places as the weather cools and they begin to make their way south or to the coast. 
One other first to report this week, New Mexico welcomes Connecticut warbler to their state list with the photo of a bird from Sierra County. This leaves only Washington and Oregon as states in the lower 48 that are still missing this species, which is one of the rarest of the eastern warblers in the West. And one other bird of note for the ABA area, a tufted flycatcher was seen at Cave Creek Canyon in Cochise County, Arizona this week. This species has been not quite annual the last few years and is a noted elevational migrant with most records coming in winter as cold weather bites the high elevations in western Mexico. Records in the fall are rare to unheard of, suggesting perhaps post-breeding wandering and northward range expansion. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. time once again for the American Birding Podcast segment that listeners are clamoring for, like so many thousands of sandhill cranes. Would that be a, a clamor? I'm not sure whether that constitutes a clamor. It's a clamor, sure. Why clamoring? Not? A, a clamor. It's a, a yeah. clamoration. No, it's, it sounds good. <laughs> anyway, it's Random Birds with my ABA colleague, Ted Floyd, longtime editor of the ABA's Birding Magazine. It's certainly one of my favorite segments uh, because it requires, by design, uh, practically no prep work. <laughs> Welcome back, Ted. Um, have you heard people clamoring for random birds? I have heard people clamoring for, for random birds. In fact, yeah. it's sort of random clamorings. When I meet random birders in random places randomly across the West, the uh, <laughs> subject of random birds does indeed uh, come up. I was just at a bird festival just uh, days ago up in uh, Steamboat Springs, the uh, Yampa Valley Crane Festival. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, so you're uh, very familiar with clamoring. Uh, yeah, I am, yes, I heard a lot of <laughs> crane clamoring, <laughs> clappering, whatever that sound whatever it is, is. Uh, in the past few days. But yeah, it's, it's funny, at one point, um, Oh, just during a sort of, a, it was like an indoor gather. Well, indoor, outdoor, it was mostly outdoor, but I just, uh, I guess somebody just um, must have heard me say something maybe about the clapping or clamoring of cranes and uh, said, the voice, it's the voice. And I the thought, voice. I, thought uh, I'm I get not that sure. all the time. But yeah, but yeah, yes, it was the voice, the voice of the, the, the human being who's on the other end of a <laughs> random bird. So I, I guess I, I've become a disembodied voice, Nate. I'm, I'm yes. No, nope. join the but, club. Ted. All right. Very good. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so we, we are here in the, uh, the beginning of September, uh, meteorologically, at least it is fall, even if it doesn't entirely feel like it across much of the continent. But um, Ted, what are you looking forward to for for fall birding well i'll be in new england in two days so it's a classic it's about as good as it gets and um i'm actually in particular looking forward to a boat trip on tuesday out of new hampshire unfortunately there may be a little matter of a then hurricane lee uh, churning up the surf offshore so um the forecast for tuesday is for sunny skies you know on shore uh but it may get in the way of uh this uh, very interesting pelagic trip. I gather it's sort of a, a New Hampshire list building um, oh, initiative. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that'll that'll be fun. I was going to say we could go down the, the the very deep rabbit hole of how do you um, how do you constitute pelagic boundaries for states, especially states with very small. Yes. Uh, so um, I heard from <laughs> a yes, fronts. very 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 long yeah. time ABA member uh, Louis Bevere, who's lived in Maine forever on that matter, and uh, he mm-hmm. advised me on how to stay out of Maine waters. So. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, yeah, Stay out of and, and, and it's funny, the, the, you know, these, um, what, you know, nearest line of, so however it works, you know, the, 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 those, those maps that generate, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the offshore waters, the, the one for New Hampshire, it's this really funny kind of angry looking, like, you know, 
polygon that sort of yeah, it's, it's like it doesn't, a little triangle or something it's a triangle yeah. but it's a triangle yeah. with like little you know i don't know additional flourishes or components to it so it's, it's a septagon or something yeah <laughs> uh, closest like point that. of land is a weird weird thing i know that north carolina has uh, added a few species to our list because of uh cruise ships that are technically speaking ah, in yes. uh, north carolina waters even though right. they're probably yeah uh, you know if you're going by latitude then they look like they should be in south carolina so we, we've stolen some yep. from stuff well if we see a uh, you know a uh, a likely barrel of shear water, you know, half a mile into Maine <laughs> waters. I guess we'll all collectively avert our glance and just yeah, look at the Wilson no. Storm petrels in New Hampshire. I, I ought to say, by the way, that this trip is hosted by the Nuttall Ornithological Club, uh, which is celebrating its 150th anniversary wow. this month. Yeah, it's the oldest, you know, ornithological society in probably the new world, certainly in, yeah. in the United States. It's uh, older than the AOS by 10 years. So um, it'll be fun to be up there and see a bunch of old friends. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yep. Geopolitics of birding aside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you, you, we were talking a little bit before we got started here about uh, people, perhaps you not being able to describe exactly how we go about this random birds adventure. You're just kind of amiably sitting there. Right. Yeah. Just so the audience knows. You, you. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned, I think, your lack of preparation. And I was joking. I was like, <laughs> I well, there's, there's no, there's no preparation. Nate Nate gives me a number and, I, and, and we go from there. Yeah. So. Yeah, so so what we do is um, I, I pull up a random number generator. Thank you, Google. If you Google random number generator, you can find the exact random number generator that I use to do this segment. And I have created a list of birds uh, that are seen both in the states of North Carolina, where I live, and in the state of uh, Colorado, where Ted lives. And uh, it's actually a really very long list, lots of different bird species. A good list of birds that a lot of people across the continent have probably encountered and enjoy. And so what I do is I have assigned every one of those birds a number, and I use the random number generator to choose a bird, and we talk about it. And that is that is how we do random birds. Indeed. And what the number's over, I think, 300 species? It's that, well, over 300, well over 300. It's 360... 386. Yeah. It's almost yeah, 400. Yeah, almost 40. Yes. And, and, and given again that, you know, as you sort of alluded to, since um, Colorado and North Carolina aren't near each other, no. Uh, there's no there's no East Coast bias. There's no West Coast nope. bias here. It's no. sort of a, a smattering of, of everything. And also, you and I were just joking earlier about how uh, the list is getting bigger. Uh, it is. Co- yeah. Colorado added a uh, actually several records from this summer now of, um, of a North Carolina bird, more of a Florida bird, but limpkin. We've had multiple limpkins yeah. in Colorado this summer. I need to update summer. my list. Yeah. And I think you mentioned a plumbius vireo from North, North Carolina. Got a plumbius vireo last year. Yep. Yeah, so, so, the, so uh, yeah, it's funny because we've been doing this for a couple of years now uh, on and off on the podcast. And I'm still using the same list that I used right. back when I first did it because I have no particular reason to, to update it. But you gave me a reason to yep. do it. So maybe next time I will add, I will do a little more research and I'll figure out what birds perhaps might have been added to each of our respective states to, yep. to add a little more color. Maybe we'll get Limpkin. Or Plumbius Vario. Yeah. This uh, was a, a gratuitous re- a way for me to uh, to sneak in just a little, a tiny story about the limpkin. I'll just yeah, I'll share it with with you yeah. and with everybody else. I think it's yeah. kind of funny, but also sort of bittersweet. Yeah. So the um the limpkin was found uh, within hours of a visit to a spot right by my house that the ABA's Camp Colorado was not able to visit, but almost did visit. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just one of those things. We wound up going to another really wonderful place that saw some cool birds. But um, if that sort of um, understandable change in plans hadn't happened, it would have been Camp, camp Colorado in all likelihood that would have that would have discovered the uh, Boulder County uh, limpkin. The bird was, um, oh, it's man. funny, when I think of so habitat close. for limpkins, I think, well, nothing in Colorado. And it just goes to show the birders even birders who've been at it for a long time don't always pay attention. It was in this um, very, very well 
birded area that I frequent all the time. And there's just this mm. one little part of sort of low lying, I, I swear, like swamp in this, I mean, swamp in Colorado. <laughs> the and, only and, swamp. And, the only County. swamp in Colorado. Yeah. And, and somehow this limpkin got into it and it was, yeah. it was wet and wooded and buggy. And the limpkin was just happily just sort of um, picking its way uh, through what looked like, you know, the bayou more than any part of hmm. Colorado. And it, it was definitely feeding up in the row snails there as far as I know, but um, the bird was finding food. And I just think it's, it's just so cool. All this limpkin found a swamp near my house that, you know maybe it wasn't technically hydrologically a swamp but it sure looked like a swamp to me swamp um, it, for Olympian, yeah. yeah you know like a 20th of an acre it was tiny but but the bird had found that swamp and seemed to be doing just fine in there huh. so, well go figure has, uh, you, you make it sound like it was inevitable that there would have been a limpkin turned up at that spot so there you go there you go <laughs> yep. build it and they will come all right, all right so uh let's uh let's start with the random number generator i've uh Hit it a couple times just to prime it. I don't okay. think that's necessary. Mm-hmm. But right. I did it anyway. Um, so I'm going to hit the hit the number. Let's see what we get here. It is 241. Is right, our so, first bird. So a bird right in the middle of the checklist. I don't know, a flycatcher maybe or something. Close. This is actually a bird that I, I guarantee most people in the, if not every mm-hmm. birder in the ABA area has had an experience with. It is American Crow. Uh-huh. Um. The American crow is a great yeah. bird. A lot, uh, lot to say about the American yeah, well, crow. Well, there, there, there is in, in, indeed. Um, you know, it's a bird that is colorless, right? I, I, it's, or, I mean, if you say that black is the absence of color, um, and and yet, um, and, and you know, like ravens and, and other corvids, um, it's just so extraordinary in other regards. Its behaviors, which are mm-hmm. incredibly complex, the uh, structural differences between American crow and you know. You guys back east can do fish crow. I kind of have troubles with that one, but you know, it's American still pretty tough. Yeah, but but you know, American crow versus common raven is the common mm-hmm. um, challenge for us here in in Colorado. Um, it's just a, a it's a it's a really beautiful bird in uh, sort of the right light. You get that kind of purplish or or bluish sheen uh, to yeah. it. It's a it's a bird that's been a um, a favorite of mine forever. You know, crows get a bad rap, and I guess back in the old days, they I don't know ate corn or something bad uh, like that. I don't see much of that at all. But um, you know, but getting around to my my crow story. Um, yeah, so an old mentor of mine, uh, the late uh, Ken Parks, who was a curator of birds at the um, Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, where I grew up, um, really kind of intrigued me when I was young, saying that the most extraordinary event in ornithology in his whole lifetime was the urbanization of the crow. Hmm. So I think of, and, and I'm guessing you probably do too, of the crow as an urban bird. I cannot disassociate that. I, I from know, <laughs> but that, that, that hasn't always been the case. Yeah. yeah, so the crow was one of the first birds to really kind of do that behavioral shift in the... Um, sort of mid to you know early part of the late 20th century and move into big cities mm. and um parks documented this you know throughout the uh, sort of mid to late 20th century and um it just you know parks is amazing in many regards but the you know, the fact that he could find something in the ordinary crow the, that made it out to be to him the most extraordinary ornithological development of his long lifetime mm. i thought was really cool so yeah it's a great book okay book okay, could write books about crows people probably have but it, 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 it's a great bird um uh, just you have to look closely to see some of those uh, those beautiful other colors in there um by the way when crows um uh, blink when they uh, uh they would flash that nictitating membrane that membrane's mm-hmm. blue which is really cool oh really yeah, yeah oh. so there's a little mm. bit of color in there as well so it's, a, it's just a, a beautiful bird um you know especially in good light and um, behaviorally extraordinary. How many crows do you imagine that you see every day? Because I think this is a bird that I probably see every single day. Yeah, we were just talking about that on a field trip where um, 
you know, we were just kind of cleaning up the eBird checklist at the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. And yeah, um, you forget to put well, the well, that's, eBird that's checklist the, you know, because did, they're did, so ubiquitous. Right, yeah. Did anybody see a crow? Did anybody see a crow? And you're like, oh, yeah, we saw a crow. We just sort of forgot to note it. We were keeping, somebody was keeping a track in the field, um, you know, keeping us, sorry, Italians in the field as we were going. You know, when we saw the Cassin's Vireo or the Townsend's Warbler or the Flock of Cedar Waxwings or whatever, you know, we, we got that on there. And like, it's, it's easy to sort of forget about that bird. I would say, I see, or especially hear, crows yes, exactly. every single day, pretty much everywhere yeah. I go. I, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, there, there are some places I guess that don't have crows, but in general, whether we're Sacramento or Seattle or North Carolina or Colorado, um, there are crows out there. Yeah, yeah. No, I know there's there's a flock of neighborhood crows in my in my in my neighborhood, um, mm-hmm. and they fly over all the time, and they're always making a ton of noise, and sometimes they sit on top of my roof or sit on the uh, chimney on the flue yeah. and uh, start yelling. And it just echoes like throughout my house because it echoes down the, down the chimney and into the living room. Um, here it's a little bit different because I do see a lot of fish crows too, mm-hmm. especially right, in right. the, in the summer. I'd say it's probably about uh, equal numbers of, of both. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're just everywhere. They're just uh, all over the place. Hey, one thing I'll get in real quick about the crow here and um, just sort of a, a little bit of, I don't know, intermediate knowledge about the vocalizations of the crow. So, you know, the crow gives that famously harsh caw, 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 mm-hmm. caw that, you know, everybody knows whether or not they everybody know knows. crows yeah, at all. Yeah, they don't, don't but, even have to be a bird. But they do that. so many other cool sounds. Uh, yeah, they actually, make so many weird They're mimics. And, and I mean, they mimic human voices really well, but also these kind of very like, I don't know, kind of like sinister cackles and, you know, they self-absorbed chuckles and um, gurgles, gurgles, uh, uh, clacking sounds, um, Mm -hmm. whistles sometimes. So uh, if you spend a lot of time with a crow, um, you get past the caw, caw, caw pretty quickly. Yeah, I do uh, breeding bird surveys here in the Piedmont of North Carolina and in the Piedmont of Virginia. And, um, you know, crow is one of those birds that, American crow, I should say, uh, should should make a distinction here, Yep, um, is a bird that I see it uh 75% of my 50 breeding bird survey spots and um you do get a sense when you're doing a breeding bird survey and you're really keyed in on all the vocalizations that are around you all the weird noises that that crows make and it's just corvids in general because i should say fish crows can make some odd they're they're slightly mm. less slightly less variable in the sounds they make just generally in my experience uh blue jays also make a lot of strange noises uh, for similar reasons but yeah yeah and you, you guys are in north carolina now maybe a little bit earlier in the summer but at that time of year with the sort of the false fish crow alert yeah, i think if birds are like out yeah, of the range ones, like in the, yep. in the appalachians or something you know where american crows you know give those uh-oh sort of calls yep. and uh, yeah we hear that uh, of course in, in colorado it's just the, a normal vocalization of the young mm-hmm. crow but uh, yeah i think we have a sort of a false fish crow alert yeah, uh, sure. pretty much pretty much daily especially in the southeastern part of the state because incidentally i think fish crow i know we're talking about american crow, but i think fish crow is um certainly a possible addition to the um mm-hmm. to the colorado list before too long they're certainly well into kansas and i you know in oklahoma now and you know is that right yeah they're moving up river so mm-hmm. uh, a pioneering fish crow may yet make its way to a southeastern colorado before too long yeah uh, one of the things i used to do um when i was you know, not working for the ABA and trying to find ways to work birds into my regular mm. life was like put a bunch of historic records from the old Carolina Bird Club journal into oh, yeah. eBird under under a kind of a uh, general eBird account. Yep. And um, there were records from you know, going back into the 60s and 70s, and it's it's really interesting to to see the change in in dynamics of some of those birds over the course of that time. Um, fish crow used to be a a quite uncommon bird you know, more than 150, 200 miles inland. Yeah. And now, you know, I live in Greensboro in the Western Piedmont. 
Um, again, as I said before, it's probably 50-50. There's a lot of fish crows around. Yeah. So um, it's funny. Just this morning, I was on the phone with a, a prominent ABA contributor, Steve Hampton, uh, mm-hmm. and he and I actually were talking about avian flu. But um, uh, you, you reminded me that he has an article uh, not too long ago in Birding Magazine with a really interesting range map showing the change uh, in distribution in the past you know, 30 or 40 years with the fish crow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, since I've lived largely outside the range of the fish crow now for you know 25 years, I haven't really been totally up on the, the fish crow expansion. But when I lived in uh, central Pennsylvania, I remember the, uh, the old timers, if you will, um, uh, chided the uh, some other birders for reporting what they called fishy crows because they couldn't yeah they couldn't believe bring themselves to believe that uh, fish crows had reached central Pennsylvania you know like yeah. away from the Susquehanna and the, the major yeah. river drainage now they're you know all over the state as far as I'm aware so yeah the fish crow expansion yeah. inland which is it's a range expansion also a like a habitat shift yeah. is uh, really remarkable oh when I was growing up in southern Missouri um, no fish crows but now mm-hmm. when I go back it's fish crows. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's been 20 years, so, yeah. yeah I note that we have really gotten off the subject of American crow over, <laughs> over to fish crow, but that's how it goes with <laughs> random goes. birds. That's how, yes. that's how random right. it is. Yeah. Okay. All right, speaking of, let's move on uh, to another bird. Let's see what we have here. 205, so um, right moving up a little bit. There, so. Yeah, this is a bird that I have not seen in um, North Carolina, though I have seen it uh, in other states. It is uh, Northern Sawet Owl. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the, uh, you mentioned having not seen it in North Carolina. It is, of course, in I've North heard Carolina. It. I've heard it. Oh, you've, yeah. oh, I see. You've heard it. Okay. I, 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 you've seen to mean sort it's of just, detected. And, no. Yeah. yeah and I did. Yeah. And then I just, as soon as you started talking, I remembered yeah, yeah. that I've seen it on the Outer Banks. Yeah. Yep. But oh, on the Outer Banks, I was going to guess. I've like heard it on the Outer Banks. Got, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a tiny little owl. It's uh, actually substantially smaller than the screech owl, which I think probably is sort of maybe the default small owl for folks in much of the ABA mm-hmm. area. Um, certainly in my experience, apparently yours too, more often heard than seen. Yep. Um, it can just be just almost like unbelievably vocal uh, during yes. the, the courtship season. It just gives this very simple, and funny, I've tried to whistle before um, it, with the software <laughs> well, we're using. Well, and, works, well no, yeah. yeah, my whistle, like it, it's like the, the software, like, oh, well, I, I hear you. I don't know if, if, if the uh, the audio we'll will see. pick it up or not, but yeah, it knows that like the whistle is like some sort of external sound that it takes out. Oh, but yeah, really? it's just, <laughs> it, yeah it's, but it's, anyway, so, so the, yeah, the, the software just gives this like constant whistling it's like about yeah. like two per second just and and it, it could go on for minutes at a time like you wonder like doesn't this bird need to take a breath or something <laughs> like that but yeah the um even like the w- really well birded parts of the um front range metro region just west of denver and the the ponderosa pine foothills you know we're still learning a lot about this bird like the extent of its wintering um, presence here, which is, is, yes. is extensive, significant, um, yes, and but because they're not as vocal, um, yep. they're not really detected unless you do sort of like designated um, surveying for them. But uh, the movements of the sawwood owl are just not well well they understood. Um, oh, but they're large, and we know that from these dedicated um, like sawwood owl banding projects. You know, well away from the breeding grounds. Um, I think you know that'll be like in what like October, November. It's a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, big numbers, um, you know, in the sort of the, the flatland uh, part of the ABA area, you know, between the, between the, you know, in the middle, between the Appalachians and the Rockies. But just a cool little bird that whistles on sort of still winter nights, early spring nights. To me, it's a very sort of rocky mountains, foothills, yeah. uh, kind of quiet, calm night, you know, maybe a little breeze in the ponderosa pine, the moon shining brightly. It's a, but that said, I've, you know, I've heard them in um, downtown Philadelphia. Uh, so, oh, really? uh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. When I lived in Philadelphia, that was a bird that we could actually see, you know, 
if you went searching for them. Um, huh. So they, they really get around. Yeah, my, my North Carolina experience with uh, Northern Salvador was, as I said, in the in the Outer Banks. It was actually in the winter. And it was uh, during the Carolina Bird Club meeting. I forget, it was several years ago. They held a winter meeting in uh, Nags Head, a very popular birding location. It was extremely cold winter. I remember that being like just very bitterly cold everywhere we went. But there had been a uh, Sawadell singing from a stand of pines at the Body Island Lighthouse. Oh, wow. If you're you're probably not familiar with this, but the, you know, there's one road that runs down the Outer Banks, Highway 12. And then um, there's the Body Island Lighthouse, which is on the southern, southern end of Body Island. And it's a tourist place, but it's also very good birding. But there's a road that goes out there to the lighthouse that is just covered on both sides with uh, these big loblolly pines. It's very, very dense and very thick. And um, yeah, the Sawad Owl was, uh, had been calling um, most every evening there. And uh, I remember that we were all sitting there in um, the amphitheater at the hotel listening to Susan Campbell, who is a noted oh, yeah. hummingbird, hummingbird bander, yeah, sure. uh, give a talk about hummingbirds of North Carolina. And the text started rolling in like, I saw what I saw what I saw what I was calling right now. And as soon as Susan wrapped it up, um, you know, some people like at least a quarter of the crowd kind of bamoosed and oh, ran yeah. all the way down to right. Body Island, which is like that's, a 10 minute drive away. That's funny. And um, it listened, listened to the saw what owl. It was calling down there. That's how, that's how I heard it. Cool. Um, there are there are stories of them in the Appalachians though that they're very aggressively respond to to songs whistled whistled imitations or tapes. Um, people will say that they you know you whistle and the bird will like come right at your head, and that's actually been one of the ways that people have been able to determine uh, that big those big uh, fall movements as well, which I think yeah, is fascinating. And, and they're aggressive. Um, I have I've seen I saw one out um, harassing or you know mobbing a moose. And a friend <laughs> really? told me that, yeah. And a friend told me that they saw one um, mobbing or harassing a, a bear. So, yeah, uh, yeah saw one owls are aggressive. Hey, just two quick things on names. It's funny you mentioned um, a place in North Carolina that um, I absolutely have heard of for as long oh, yeah. as I've been Body, a But yeah. I always thought it was Bodie. So, anyhow, Bodie, so, yeah. so, so thank you for that correction. I've, I've seen yeah. the name in print for, you know, 40 it's a, years. It's a but, person's name. Gotcha. Um, the other thing I wanted to say just about birds' names is um, it's not, you know, we birders just, you know, very unself-consciously and unreflexively say, you know, Northern Sawwet Owl. That's such a funny name, like saw yeah. hyphen wet. And yeah. um, Greg Neese, our, our colleague, who I know is often on, on the show as well, or on the, on the podcast, um, actually set me straight on the sound of the, the saw wet. Um, I always, so they have this like secondary or tertiary song, which is sort of a, and I, I thought it was that call, but it, apparently it's the whistle, like the with that, that basic standard primary the song. It supposedly sounds like the the wedding. I don't wet saws very often. Yeah, yeah, it's not a, it's not <laughs> it's a, a, a thing yeah, that modern people need to yeah. do. And it's, it's just it's funny. It's a, it's a name that um, you know, what does it mean to us in the 21st century? At least to most of us in the 21st century. But yeah, you know, we just yeah. sort of just unthinkingly and unselfconsciously retain that name. There's also a, 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 a it's not the only saw wet owl. One of my favorite bird names is the unspotted saw wet owl. Right. Naming the uh, bird after a feature it does not have. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. right. And, and, and a sound that most of us don't really <laughs> you know, read, connect with at all. But yes, the unspotted saw wet owl. Yeah. So anyhow. Yeah. What is it? It's supposed to be the sound of the blade touching the the wedding I, stone right the, so the wedding stone spins uh, and the blade goes do 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 to, to sharpen it is that, it's just is that what the saw like went you, i guess it was like the threshing floor or something like it's just it's a sound from the 19th century really it, it and, absolutely but, 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 but we yeah. retain that name so yeah yep. fascinating yeah all right great one. Oh, right. uh we'll hit the random number generator again and see okay. what it gets us man we are staying in the 200s this all time right. this one drops us to 298 okay so all the way down oh this is a fun one too Lark sparrow. Ooh. Like a bird named after another bird. 
Yeah, there's the number of birds called lark in the yeah. ABA area, or for that matter, in, in the world. So the, the lark sparrow is a sparrow. It's not a lark. Um, lark. We have vastly more of them in uh, Colorado than um, almost than certainly. Have in, in, we in have North. they they do breed here. They though. do breed, yeah. In and, weird uh, places. We can talk just about on a that. on a personal note, one of the uh, sort of the very first rare birds I ever found was a lark sparrow summering in um, Orange County, Virginia, in 1985, mm-hmm. and um, way before the day of well, eBird, obviously, but also before the day that birders routinely carried cameras. So I had just um, exquisite notes. I was just so excited about it. And I wrote out, went out every day and just had inc- just notes after notes after notes and also some sketches. And um, at the years later, uh, Ned Brinkley um, indicated to me that the bird was a review species, at least in that part of Virginia or something like that. So I, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I submitted my field notes for um for the larkspur in orange county and i guess they were just a bit too much for the committee they uh, <laughs> they, they, they didn't need you know oh how what was i 16 years old they didn't need 16 year old ted floyd's you know um like i'm not kidding like 41 pages of field wow. notes for, you know a low-grade rarity right i, yeah. I mean it's not it's not they, I, I suspect they bred in, in, in i'm sure they bred in virginia yeah um, local well, breeders, but, yeah yeah but yeah it's, it's a funny bird sort of a, a midwestern bird although certainly a very western bird as well that has this um historic and also seasonally very um, unstable eastern limit of its range. So um, it, as you said, breeds in North Carolina, and but some years it withdraws. It's like scissor-tailed flycatcher, you know, one of those birds that has this mm-hmm. very just, you know, intrinsically unstable ranges. In Colorado, in the eastern part of the state, uh, in uh, July and August, it can be the most abundant bird of all. Wow. So what happens, yeah, is all the... It's um, a fun, abundant bird, though. It, it, it's it's they're, they're, they're beautiful, yeah. yeah. So um, the... Um, all the birds on their molt migration, so the birds, you know, sort of moving off the breeding grounds because there's no food in the Rockies, um, wind up in these sort of somewhat wetter areas in uh, southeastern Colorado, also like western Kansas, western um, uh, Nebraska, Oklahoma Panhandle, um, Texas Panhandle, and just are super abundant there. Uh, we always trip the filter with eBird mm. whenever we go birding in um, like southeastern Colorado in like uh, mid-July or sometime like that. Um, and one thing that you alluded to, but we should say, it's a glorious bird. I mean, yeah. it's really beautiful. It looks like a, you know, Montezuma quail or something. The head pattern, it's just yeah. got chestnut and black and white and sort of some like tans and buffs. It's a beautiful bird, big white tail corners and a crazy song. That's the yeah. other thing too. So. Yeah. It, it's, it's so funny. I, I always think of them as having these very, this kind of patchwork just distribution across the um, yeah. the eastern half of the continent they they will be in this kind of dry upland sand soil right habitat right. like every time and if there are these little even if the patches are very very small there will frequently be a lark sparrow nesting on it i i, I recall going up to uh, mcgee marsh the biggest week festival mm-hmm. and i have led uh, several field trips to um, oak openings which is mm-hmm. the place just a little bit uh, southwest of the maggie marsh area proper yeah. And one of the birds that you look for there is uh, lark bun, lark sparrow, lark, no, sparrow, lark, yeah. I think, lark sparrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's in this dry, sandy, open area with some straggly, you know, yeah. cedar trees, so juniper uh, trees, or, or and sweet gum, and yeah, they'll just be there singing, sitting on top of like they're there every single time, and that's yeah. the same sort of place they are in in North Carolina, though um, fewer sweet gums and, and cedar, and more the like these kind of little tufty longleaf pine yeah. uh, things. And funnily enough. They nest on the the bombing range at Fort Bragg. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's where a lot of people see that where where people from the state who go down mm-hmm. and do bird surveys, yep. regular civilians can't go on the bombing range at, yeah. at Fort Bragg. But that's where the the lark sparrows will will be year in year out um, breeding in these kind of burned over 
sandy, sandy lots. Yeah, that's more or less. Just, it's a perfect description of the habitat in uh, in Colorado as mm-hmm. as well. I mean, big big state with lots of habitat and just many many more lark sparrows and yeah. migration. They show yeah. up anywhere, but but still, yeah. I mean, if just sort of like the, the word sand or sandy, like that's, yeah, so that's it. classic. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and again, you know, d- you know, dry, including sort of desert, usually with just like you said, sort of scraggly trees. The one other element I'll add is sort of like um, <laughs> I need to be careful. I'm going to word this, but sort of like a it's got like a trashy element to the, to, uh, yeah. to, to, to the habitat. Yeah, like there needs to be like 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 a I got like an old like decrepit outbuilding or something <laughs> like that. Like like I mean that that's I always sort of, like I, I imagine like how I feel when I'm there, which is always like kind of hot and muggy and sort of mildly unpleasant. That's how yeah. I I'll, I'll, I'll give you all that, that yeah, except, except for the muggy, except for the um, the muggy parts that you yeah, don't really get enough. that in, in Colorado. <laughs> but yeah, everything else, and there's there's something kind of I don't know, gothic or spooky about it. There's just, <laughs> as I said, there's always you're I don't know, just broken down equipment, an old I don't yeah, know, an old, old car, uh, yeah. right? Something yeah. like that. That's sort of the uh, the essence of the uh, ideal habitat for the lark sparrow. Yeah. So. Yeah, you put that in. Put that in the field guides. They don't talk about that in the field guides. Enough. Oh, some field guides they do, but yeah, no, <laughs> wink, wink, right? Okay, yeah, but right. yeah. Right. Exactly. Funnily enough, though, it's it's funny that these two, the sawed owl and the lark sparrow, are back to back because uh, both are birds that I got my first North Carolina representative at at the same place at oh, Body cool. Island. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Funnily enough, and if, if I've learned anything today, it's how to pronounce, it's Body, how to pronounce Island. Body Island. Very yeah, excellent. Right. All right. All right, we got another one. Let's okay. uh, let's hit the button. Moving right along, two sixty eight. It is wow, like, you, boy, your is, random it, generator is not behaving particularly randomly today. Well, I guess anyhow. it is, or it is. <laughs> yeah. I, it, all right, I know. Yeah, we're just on, we're on, we're on a run. We're so, on a run. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, this is another one that's uh, this is one that's more common here where I am uh, than where you are. It is uh, it is wood thrush. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a rare. A pretty uncommon. Bird it's it's, it's uh, more than uncommon. It's it's rare. Um, I guess. I would call it rare. It's not so rare as to be casual. Um, a- a- annual I never mistake, know exactly but, what those terms mean. Yeah, I, I know, but I mean, it, it, it's annual somewhere yeah. in Colorado. Yeah. Um, it's a, just a classically, wonderfully Eastern thrush to me. I, you know, I sure. think of, you know, just sort of use the word muggy, but, you know, muggy, lowland, bottomland forests and, you know, well, my home state of Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know, yeah. June, July into August, something like that, that incredible song. Um, we get them, you know, from time to time um, in, in Colorado, but it's uh, it's a bird that people, um, you know, go looking for. Um, best of all is when we get them in early summer or late, um, yeah, like, like early June, late May when they're singing um, mm-hmm. in oh, general. Our, yeah, but our, our wood thrushes tend to be just birds on, on fall migration that mm-hmm. are quiet except for that little twangy flight call that they, they sometimes give. So, um, yeah, that's more of a North Carolina bird really than a Colorado yeah, still, bird. still pretty common mm-hmm. here. Um, not not uh, not a bird that you'll miss. I, I mean, I have them singing in the spring in my backyard briefly. Um, there's a park where I live uh, here in Greensboro where if you go like when migration is really happening, it's the place where a lot of local yep. birders go to to look for warblers. And it frequently has a high concentration of wood thrushes for some reason, but there's a lot of them there and they are frequently singing and you just got like three or four or five wood thrushes coming at you from yeah. all different. It's a very, very cool experience. I have, I have two kind of funny wood, wood thrush stories. The first one uh, happened to me just this past spring when I was at my daughter's soccer practice uh and we're gonna hanging out and i'm hanging out with the the other parents and we're talking and it came out that my job was bird related and i never entirely know how to explain what i do but uh they were like oh you you do bird stuff i'm like yeah yeah more or less and and this dad who i'd known pretty well for the last couple years his daughter had been on the same team it's like 
So can I find wood thrushes around here? Mm-hmm. Which is a question that felt like totally out of the blue mm-hmm. and immediately uh, caused me to go on like a 10 minute talk about how much I love wood thrushes mm-hmm. and where you can find them around here at the park. I told him the park, but he was like, yeah, he grew up in Pennsylvania and mm-hmm. it was a bird that he remembered from his childhood singing in the forest behind his house. And I thought it was cool. The guy was not a birder, but he knew wood thrushes, which I thought was. was really yeah. Nice. It's such a, it's a great song. You know, yeah. the, the, hermit, the hermit thrush gets all the, the fame and glory. It seems like the most celebrated. It's, a little of the it's, a little, um, it, it's, it's, trying it's, it's excessive, but, but, but yeah, I mean, the wood thrush is for my Perfect. money, just yeah. as rich, just as, yeah. uh, just as very, just as beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And my second wood thrush story was that, um, I happened to be on an ABA trip to oh, yes, the St. Paul Islands right? in yeah. uh, St. Paul Island and the Pribilofs in the Bering Sea and where we got uh, the very first record of Wood Thrush for Alaska uh, in the middle of the Bering Sea, which yeah. was absolutely bonkers. Right. Uh, you know, you come to those places and you're looking for... We whispered uh, Auckland or something. Yeah, something yeah. weird. Uh, you know, little bunting. Oh, um, a vagrant, right, right. Vagrants from, from, from the, the other from side the of the east. world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you end up with a uh, wood thrush <laughs> sitting in the middle of the road uh, next to, you know, short-tailed shearwaters flying by and uh, tufted puffins and stuff like that. We, we'd actually just looked at a, a red-flanked blue tail mm-hmm. and the wood thrush was the rarer bird on that trip. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, something that the uh, sort of um, longtime, you know, tour leaders and also just, you know, Alaskan birders sort of really kind of drill in on is like, you know, don't just focus on the Asiatic vagrants, you know, the, the wood yeah. thrushes and no, other I birds know, from, I from, 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 oh, I know. Yeah. You, you, we you had had a that, lot but, of wind from the, from the East side. Yeah. And so we actually had a lot of kind of cool North American vagrants. But I, I think it's just always really cool. And, you know, you read these reports and I just like reading, you know, trip leaders reports, you know, about how excited they got about the, you know, nth record of a chipping sparrow from wherever they were, or like <laughs> yeah. a flock of redheads or something yeah. uh, like that. Because, um, yeah, Alaska, in addition to, you know, sort of picking up these, you know, exciting, you know, from a list building perspective, Asiatic mm-hmm vagrants um, also draw some pretty extraordinary birds from um, way to the southeast. And keep in mind, you know, that North Carolina, let's say that was the source of this wood, wood thrush. That's much farther away. It's much from, farther away. Exactly. No, we were thinking about that. Like, what would be the equivalent on the other side? It would be I, like I, somewhere in central China. Icterine warbler, right? Yeah, Icterine warbler. Yeah, because some of their birds come from very far away yeah. as well. They're not all from Kamchatka or somewhere. Yeah, like I think that. at the time, the, um, the closest wood thrush record to that Alaska St. Paul Island record was somewhere in the middle of Saskatchewan. Like it was, it was well oh, wow. beyond where even the farthest afield wood thrush yeah. record was at wow. the time. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I travel all the way to the middle of the Bering Sea to uh, get a bird that I can hear in my backyard. Yep. Hey, one <laughs> real quick taxonomic note and then we'll, we'll move on. So the, the wood yeah. thrush is one of the so-called, you know, spot breasted thrushes. Yep. Um, but it's not in the same genus, Catharis, yeah, as, as the others. Yeah. yeah. So it's a Hylocycla. And, you know, basically, it kind of is a catharis. I think it's so close to catharis that they could put hylocycla, the wood thrush, in the same genus, but it's different enough. I mean, it is, you know, in terms of its um, structure and appearance, you know, distinctive uh, compared to you know, that kind of group of yes. swainses and hermit. Yeah, it's kind of more um, pot bellied. Kind of, yeah, yeah. And, and just it's kind of a more brightly marked bird yeah. overall. But, but to me, the song is so catharis like. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it reminds me of a hermit thrush, a swainson's thrush, a great cheek thrush, something like that. It feels like it, I don't know, to, to me, if I, were, if I were just going by feel, and that's not how we do taxonomy, I realize. But, um, not I anymore. It, yeah, <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore, exactly. Um, it just, it's, it feels like very catharis or, you know, spot, spot brush and thrush like to me. Is it the only member of its genus? Is there another? Yeah, um, it's certainly the only member of its genus in the ABA area. And I 
yeah, I'm, I can't think of any other highlight. I, uh, my strong hunch is, is that you, everyone's favorite yeah, yeah, thing uh, yeah, going to but, Wikipedia in the middle yeah, of a. But uh, yeah, I, I, but I, I, I think it's the only high, the only extant, you know, um, hylocycla. Yes, I believe that you're correct. All right, we, I think we got time for one. Oh, do as many as you want. Sure. Right. The, the night is young, but you know, the morning, but, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, maybe we'll get on the other side. Let's even uh, get some other. Not in the twos. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we do. We're moving all up. Right. We're moving up this time. All right. One fifty. Okay. So somewhere before the passerines, I don't know. Yeah, it's frankly, not a passerine. It is yeah. in there. It is uh, another bird that I've probably seen more in my state than you have in yours. It is royal tern. Yeah, boy, that's a really rare bird in Colorado. I would imagine so. Um, anywhere yeah, inland, yeah, like, even even like more than two hundred miles inland. That yeah, is a good so, bird. yeah, that that's rarer than uh, wood thrush, and um, you know, it's. That, that's I, I would call that bird accidental in in, in Colorado. Wow, right. just, yeah, just a very need small a, handful storm. of records. Yeah. yeah, you know, every time every time you know, it happens very rarely, <laughs> extremely rarely. But for the handful of royal turd records, there is sort of an effort to associate them with storms, and yeah. that's sort of not terribly successful in <laughs> in Colorado. They just sort of show up when they, I I, you know, I don't believe there's been one here you know, for five or six years. Steve Laudanoff found one close to Denver maybe five or six years ago, but that that that's how rare the royal hmm. turn is um we could talk about other turns that have showed up in, in colorado but yeah just a it's a beautiful turn it's it's well named it is it is royal you know it's Royalist. um it's, yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting bird in terms of its you know body structure it's almost as like um long as a caspian turn mm-hmm. but um the the heft of the bird is skinny much yeah. right it's a much just less substantial bird uh, than the uh the Caspian turn. Um, one challenge for us in Colorado, of course, it's probably a bigger challenge for you in North Carolina, is, you know, when we get one of those crested turns, you know, the, 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 mm, the, mm-hmm. the skinny, you know, sort of long build, colorful build, you know, crested turns, you know, well, what, what is it? You know, we have to, we have to look up for elegant turn, for example, that has yeah. not shown up yet well, in Colorado, not in, but not in North Carolina either, but I think it's probably it, has shown it, up. But sure. Yeah. It. Yeah. Um, easy to Col- Colorado has a sandwich turn record, believe it mm. or not. And, you know, sandwich turns, you know, with classic bill shape, no problem, but uh, sorry, bill, bill color, bill pattern, mm-hmm. um, cayenne turn. I'm thinking of, you know, that, right, uh, yeah, uh, the and, and then of course, which population of sandwich turn are we talking about? Ooh, so, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, no Royal turn is one of the uh, rarest of the rarest of the rare, in Colorado, and when I see royal turns, it's typically on vacations back east, frankly. Yeah, so. well, I will say it is probably the most common turn mm. on the coast of North Carolina oh, yeah. uh, consistently. It is, it is the one that you see all the time if you are hanging out on the beach, um, see them flying by. One of the things that I find most interesting about royal turn is that you see the uh, the kind of classic image in the field guides, most field guides, is of the you know, clean black Cow oh right, which, which like they, they have. They for, hold that for like a for week and a week, half. Yeah, I was just gonna <laughs> say, so yeah, short. <laughs> they immediately start molting and get that kind of old man uh, ring around the back, you know, yeah. receding hairline kind of right. look that they have. That that is wh- how you see them. Yeah, so that that's what you just said is sort of poignant for me personally. Um, I, <laughs> I wasn't had, mean it to well, be. Well, no. So I had an opportunity. Well, look, I, I know when this was. It was the summer of nineteen eighty one. So I was pretty young at the time and my family was vacationing at Virginia Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had a, a, a small throwaway pair of binoculars and um, I, I, my knowledge was limited at the time, but I could see these beautiful, just um, big uh, orange and red billed turns yeah, offshore. Over the place. So, yeah. and this is just such a, let's see, what, 12 year old, yeah, 12 year old thing to do. But yeah, um, so I just 
took it upon myself to like swim out beyond the breakers. You know, the, the, uh, you know, the, not, I shouldn't say the breakers, you know, the, uh, the buoys, that. the buoys, the buoys, yeah. you know, that don't go past this mark yeah. uh, any further. And, you know, so I'm out there, you know, treading water in the ocean, holding my binoculars up above the level of the water. Good way know, to trying ruin to, a pair of binoculars. To, 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 well, they were that, I was thinking more a good way to drown. But <laughs> so, 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 yeah, I, so, so, I, so I actually got, um, I got, uh, re- reprimanded by like you know the lifeguard or I mean, somebody came out to see what on earth was going because with my hands you know up over the water level it looked, looked like, like I was you in, were looking I, for it help. was in distress yeah, yeah. yeah. and um I explained that I was trying to sort out, you know, Royal Caspian and, you know, their sandwich turns for GBH, at least they were at the time. It's and uh, yeah, that just was met with um extreme um befuddlement on the part of the, the uh, person who came out to rescue me so yeah hey, yeah that's uh when in doubt just to uh, swim out to so, the yeah. uh to pass the uh pass the don't swim here markers and try to figure out the turn so that, that's my uh, that was my first encounter with a royal turn well those are the two species that you're the three species i suppose that you are gonna you're gonna look for uh, you know sandwich turns and uh royal turns are always together i always think of them as yeah. like a big brother little brother sort of thing like they're always sandwich turns around when there are royal turns and vice versa Caspian yeah. turn at least where i am uh, Caspian turn is much more common inland for starters. Yeah. And also, you know, you see them on the coast and they, they prefer the sound side. They're not uh, as much as frequently out on the yeah. open ocean as the, as the Royal turns. Yeah. And, and again, uh, elegant turn for, for, for sure. That needs to be in the mix. Obviously from a West yeah, coast uh, well, perspective. Yeah. Elegant yeah. Turn, your West coast. And that always baffles me when I'm out on the, on the West coast, as I was uh, this past summer. Um, how do you tell elegant turn from Royal turn? Cause that right, is yeah. like not something that is in my, in my, yeah. Uh, the bill structure to, to me <laughs> is really, is, is, is the sort of the, the starting point that the elegant yeah. has a much longer, thinner, decurved bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but there can be tricky birds. That, no, where I was going with that with regard to the East Coast, though, and even the rest of the world, is that um, elegant terns are really getting around. Like they're breeding in Europe. That's like, yeah, so wild. yeah, I heard that. Yeah, uh, yeah to, to, to me. Yeah, um, in the Mediterranean, so, yeah. And I know that the birders in Florida are doing a really good job now of like basically giving a second look at every turn in that genus. To and sure knowing how many freaking royal turns there are down there like yeah, that's yeah. a that's not a small job yeah well you know um summer in florida can get a bit um but it's um you focus in on some of that the, the hard problems in yeah, summer so. uh in, in, in florida but yeah no they're doing a great job in florida of really establishing just how you know frequent now uh, um elegant turns are becoming and again the fact that they're breeding in i think multiple countries in europe is yeah. just so extraordinary to me for my money, that is on the very short list of next birds for for North Carolina. Oh, it's on South my list. Carolina. Sure, uh, it's on my list for for Colorado. In fact, uh, yeah. when Hillary Hurricane Hillary mm-hmm. uh, came up through oh, the right, yeah. Southwest a few weeks ago, um, there were a few folks in the far southern southwestern part of Colorado uh, hoping against hope for a um, an elegant turn. Uh, Neotropic cormorants nesting there now, so so mm-hmm. so so why not? But uh, yeah. yeah, I don't want to say it's a matter of time because we're always proven wrong in these things. But I, I kind of think it's a matter of time before yeah. an elegant turn makes its way. Uh, to it's the it's the, it's the uh, little egret conundrum as well. Like, who's going to sit there and try and pick through all the medium-sized right, white, white gray, egrets? With gray hair, and, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah exactly. And any gull, but yeah. Any gull. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Gray gull. There you yeah, go. Yeah, that's a distinctive one. So. Yeah. Cool. All right. One more. We got one more. We go. Okay. Time do one more. Sure. Why one. not? Okay. Uh, 33. Oh, right at the beginning. So a right duck right or a grouse right or something. Yeah. Uh, it is It is white-winged scoter. Oh. Yeah. So it is a duck. So yet another North Carolina themed bird. Yeah, I guess um, so. Yeah. We, although, we, it, although that is, it is the scoter that I mm-hmm. most often think of as a, like an in interior 
possibility. Yeah, and they're 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 annual in in Colorado, but again, you know, a, a good bird. It's one that if you're doing a big year in Colorado, um, we get them. By the way, mostly in the fall. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to be checking out the listers and the text alerts, and oh, yeah. um, you know, probably you. I mean, you might well find one. That's not they're not that rare, but it's sort of a bird people go to look for, um, especially uh, the the big reservoirs in the Front Range metro region, you know, in and around. Denver. Um, it's, a, it's a cool looking bird. I remember um, my family and I were out on uh, Long Island on uh, New Year's Eve um, of 2022 and uh, just sort of that kind of what's going to be the last bird of the, of the day mm-hmm. or the last bird of the year. And uh, it was a really uh, dense, foggy night on the North Shore of Long Island. And um, as the fog kind of got denser and nightfall came in the the white winged scoters came closer and closer oh, nice. to shore and they were pretty much like not even in the surf they were like almost on the beach and one of them actually walked up onto the, the sandbar where we were standing i, I rarely see scoters on on land yeah and very they, awkward they're, they're, they're funny yeah, yeah i know they're very they look like alcids or something yeah. they're very funny looking very upright at least this one was but um yeah it's a big i mean quite large it's the largest scoter mm-hmm. um, with that kind of strange curly cue on the eye and of course the big white wing patch as well it's, yeah. a, it's a beautiful bird with a strange kind of misshapen but also i think kind of really beautiful bill as well but yeah it's the uh it's the least common of the three mm-hmm. scoters uh in north carolina and further south i think they are more common as you go up the coast mm-hmm. uh where we get large numbers of black and surf but yeah. you can usually if you're if you're willing to sit there and watch all the scoters flying by on a you know november day um, you'll probably see a few white wings mixed in with the scoter flocks and, and frequently yeah. kind of in ones and twos on their own as well. Um, they don't come down in big flocks uh, for the most part down here. You'll see them in, in by themselves or in, yeah. in flocks of smaller than five or mixed in with the, the large flocks of, of black scoter. Yeah. It's a, it's a skilled diver. You know, it's funny when mm-hmm. a bird goes under the water, like, we kind of lose it. We have no idea how far. I mean, we know from from the literature how far they go down. But you know, some birds like I'm like a shearwater or something barely goes under the surface um, at all. But um, the uh, scoters get way down there. They're mainly a, what they're called benthic feeders. You know, they yeah, feed, the, um, the like in the mollus- ocean. Uh, like they're going, yeah, yeah, they're going like all, like you know a bird like well offshore. Like they're not just you know going down you know three feet to find a little fishy fishy you know they're going all the way to the bottom of the ocean now i i know that's not off the continental shelf or anything um like that but it's just it's cool that they're not just you know messing around with you know just some stuff right under the surface they're way down there feeding um quite quite some distance below the surface you know you said at the beginning of the uh show that there was no east coast bias but here i am giving east coast that, bias of white wings scooter <laughs> and they're quite common on the west coast as well sure i, I well um local though yeah yeah to me the uh kind of the, the west coast scooter, at least around the big uh you know sorry this is u.s based but you know the u.s um, population centers you know Los surf, Angeles does. Yeah. Surf scoter, exactly. Yeah. Surf scoter. And uh, surf scoter is the one that in some ways is the least surf inclined bird. They often hmm. come well inland. It's like lagoons and, um, you know, even like uh, duck parks, you know, inland hmm. and places. Oh, really? uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, to, to some extent, but yeah, it's a really common bird out there. And, and the surf scoter in Colorado is our most common scoter i should say that's another kind of scoter by the way the common yeah. scoter but <laughs> that's right the most frequently detected scoter in yeah. colorado is the, yeah. the surf scoter and the uh the white wing boy white wing or black i'm not sure but you know they're decidedly less common again not a uh mega rarity stop everything yeah. that you're doing but yeah if you're on a, a big year you certainly pay attention to the white wing scoter reports it's 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 eminently missable i mean you, you if you you might have to go chasing after somebody else's when I was in the Bay Area earlier this year, um, surf scoter was the was the one that we saw almost right. everywhere, and right. yeah, as you yeah. say, like inland a little bit sometimes mm-hmm. as well. Yep. So yep. Yeah. yeah, checks and out. The, uh, 
just one thing about the the white wing scoter migration in um in Colorado it just goes to show that you know there's always something new to learn so we didn't really see white wing scoters in Colorado until I want to say like maybe the 1990s and this was due to the fact that nobody knew where to look for them so mm-hmm. two uh, sort of pioneering uh, birders Tony Luker and a name known to many of us and also Joey Kellner a uh, sort of more sort of a Colorado based birder just took it upon themselves to start to get up into those um mountain reservoirs like around mm-hmm. Thanksgiving so yeah it, kind of the same thing like back east with like figuring out the McGillivray's warblers you know are, are you know probably regular if you're there like November, like don't, yeah. don't don't mess around September and October, yeah. and and it's the same thing with scoters and other sea ducks, like long-tailed duck in particular, and also like a they're not seabirds, but like um, a trumpeter swan. So hmm. it's high mountain reservoirs, like deep in the heart of the Rockies before they freeze over, but like as late as you can push it in the season. Like if you want to go find a white wing hmm. scoter, like go like way up into the mountains in mid-November, and that's the time to find them. Is that like a molt migration thing, or is it post- No, my yeah. guess, so these are mostly young birds, yeah. um, so like, and the, the 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 first wave of young birds have migrated much earlier, the adults have migrated a little bit. I think it's just kind of confused, mixed up birds, mm. they're like, oh, crap, we better get to the shore, and they're just like mm. cutting across the continent or something like that, so um, that would be fascinating if there were like some like hitherto like undiscovered molting <laughs> ground. And, and you know, one Up of those, the like, yeah, like Black Scoter does have like a really um, fascinating, you know, um, malting range for example yeah. but no i think it's just birds that are shortcutting across the continent and they're like it's starting to snow and it's starting to freeze over and we better get out of here yeah. um, huh. that, that's, yeah, that's, my, that's my very anthropogenic ta- anthropomorphic sorry my very anthropomorphic take on yeah. what the uh, could be anthropogenic are, too it could be anthropogenic <laughs> too but yeah what they're thinking as they um as they migrate south yeah that's interesting you know the bird that we think of as white wing scooter actually and have always thought of as white wing scooter was recently split uh, and right. the three species across the the whole of the northern hemisphere, uh, our European friends will know this bird or know a very similar species, which I it's velvet scoter. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, in East Asia, it's uh, Steiniger, 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 yeah, which has yeah. turned out to be a somewhat regular, regular, but, yeah, yeah. But uncommon bird in the in the Bering Sea. In yeah, the, oh, in the yeah absolutely regular. I know that. Um, oh, like Doug Gottschfeld and uh, yeah. the late Tom Johnson were documenting decent numbers of them. Like, I think yeah. every trip they led up there in the past couple of years was turning up. You know, I mean, I'm not saying just another Steniger scoter, but yeah, you know, I mean, kind of like that. I think, I think now that, well, now that the bird's been split and, you know, it's, yeah, a, it's a tickable bird in the ABA, yeah. people are sort of paying attention to the Steniger yeah. scoter. So, hmm. Yep. All right. That's it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pull the plug yep. on yep, this uh, random birds. It's this been an time. hour. Great. Okay. Yep. And uh, I want to thank you, Ted, for joining us. Uh, Ted, of course, uh, editor of birding magazine, one of our editors of birding magazine and uh, always available at birding magazine. <laughs> Uh, on Twitter, uh, as long as that still on exists. X, by the I way. Refuse. Yes, I oh, you refuse. Okay, I'm sorry, but uh, yes. Yeah. And incidentally, you can absolutely get there by uh, Twitter, <laughs> Twitter.com/slash Birding Magazine. It so will that, be there that. until the bitter end. Uh, yep. You know, 18 months or so. Um, yep. Anyway, uh, it's good to talk to you, Ted. Until uh, yep. next time. Yep. Thanks for having me. We'll do it again. Of course. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. This is the part where I say, if you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. Get a lot of great benefits, including magazines, discounts to partners, access to webinars, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Paul Campbell of Jasper, Georgia, Cameron Codd of Rexburg, Idaho, John Holderness of Altaloma, California, Keiko Inagaki and Bill Boone of Allen, Texas, Chris Johnson of Bend, Oregon, Phil Misseldine of Freehold, New Jersey, Russell Parsons of Fenton, Michigan, and Garth Vlachowski of 
East Hartford, Connecticut. Apologies if I got any of that wrong. But all of them recently joined the ABA, noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who thinks that American Crows are natural supporters of the ABA because they always support a good cause. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wondered if the mass exit of a bird program to seek out a tooting saw wet would be considered a free-for-all. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who tried to convince me that compared to a royal turn, the elegant turn has a longer, more drooping bill, shaped not unlike a German sausage. Truly a turn for the worst. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association on Blue Sky. We are ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird like Tom. And we'll see you next week.